Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. A warm welcome to First Move. Is it only Thursday? Yes, it is a crazy busy week already with pilot power warning. An economic hard landing may be on its way as runaway inflation proves hard to stay. The White House meeting with oil execs today as pricing patience continues to fray. President Biden channeling Madonna looking for a gas tax holiday. But economic exhaustion is all too real. Listen to the new song by Beyonce. Speaking of Queen Bay, investors looking a bit crazy in love with U.S. stocks today. Futures turning solidly higher. Europe, though, remains challenged with energy woes and softer data in focus. Economic activity slowing in both Germany and France, both the manufacturing and services sector suffering amid the conflict in Ukraine. A brighter picture, though, over in Asia with Chinese shares closing near four-month highs, buoyed by hopes of further stimulus support. China loosening monetary policy, even as the Fed and other inflation-fighting central banks tighten. The real-world ramifications of rising borrowing costs beginning to hit home in Washington, D.C. for real, too. Fed Chair Jay Powell warning senators yesterday that recession is not the goal, but cannot be ruled out, something the major Wall Street banks have been telling us for months. So a more pessimistic Powell and an accelerating energy crisis over in Europe, too. And that is where we begin today's show. Germany warns it's facing a gas crisis as Russia throttles its supplies. The government accusing Vladimir Putin of staging an economic attack as it broke the glass on the next stage of its emergency response. The nationwide gas crisis plan now escalated to the level marked alarm. The next step would be gas rationing. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, let's just take a step back here. There was wide speculation that they would have to do something as we saw Russia's gas supplies being cut, the flows into that Nord Stream 1 pipeline. What does this actually mean for consumers and businesses at this stage that are already facing higher prices? Does it mean a step up again in the costs that they're having to bear? Well, I think we were already looking at costs increasing, but looking at European uh, gas futures today, it's really quite alarming. Prices up 50% just this month alone, up some 80% uh, since before the invasion of Ukraine. And the message from the German vice chancellor was really clear this morning. He said, gas is now in short supply in Germany. And even if you don't feel it yet, we are in a gas crisis. Now, after his statement, he was asked questions uh, by the press. He was asked whether they would ration gas, uh, the German state, that is. He said, hopefully never, but of course I cannot, cannot rule that out. Um, he's uh, calling on Germans essentially to reduce their consumption now in order that they can fill up gas storage so they can see themselves through winter. We've also had a response from Russia today. We've had a response from Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov. He says the reduced supply is due to technical, not political reasons, adding there's absolutely no hidden agenda here. It all relates to some Gazprom equipment that got sent to Siemens Energy in Germany for maintenance. It ended up in Canada in one of their facilities there. And Canadian sanctions on Russia meant that it couldn't be returned. Now, Germany refutes this. They say it is not a technical reason. This is a pretext to drive up gas prices. Julia. Yes. And therein lies the rub. Germany, of course, doing everything it can in the meantime to diversify away 
from Russian gas, including ramping up coal-fired power stations, of course, mm. to, to some degree of criticism. Um, but clearly they're worried about the winter months and they've said they want to build up storage capacity. How are they doing on that front? And that has been critical to their plan to see themselves through the next couple of years. Now, currently their storage facilities are 50 56% full, we're told today. Now, that is above the average for this time of year. And I think it's important to note that, you know, in the summer, gas consumption is low. It's about a quarter or even a fifth of what you'd expect in winter. But this is about storage. And since the invasion of Ukraine, Germany actually legislated to try and fill up those gas storage facilities more than they normally would. So 80% by October, 90% by November. But that relies on their gas contracts with Gazprom being fulfilled as well as buying gas from other suppliers and, as you say, other types of energy, unfortunately, including coal. Julia? Yeah. So more measures required. I think that's the message. And actually, that was the message from the IEA this week as well, saying be prepared mm. for significant further cuts in, in Russian oil and um, got to look for other options. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. Now, in the past hour, Vladimir Putin has been speaking at the virtual BRICS summit. Russia is rapidly substituting lost trade with the West with trade from China and India, two of the other nations in the group. Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Fascinating insight, not only into the economic disruption, but just a sense of how able they are to substitute some of that lost and sanctioned trade with nations such as the BRICS that they would call uh, less unfriendly, I think, to quote the Russian term. Selena, how are they doing? And that's really the theme here. We're seeing Putin, as well as the leader of China, really use this as an opportunity to expand their vision of the global new global world order at a time when they're increasingly isolated from the West. Putin using this as an opportunity to talk about how Russia is rerouting trade to, quote, more reliable international partners. According to Putin, trade with other BRICS countries has increased by 38 percent and reached $45 billion in the first three months of the year. And take a listen to what else he said. He said, quote, contacts between Russian business circles and the business community of the BRICS countries have intensified. For example, negotiations are underway to open Indian chain stores in Russia and to increase the share of Chinese cars, equipment and hardware on our market. Now, these comments, as well as just seeing Putin, even if virtually alongside these other major growing economic leaders where we have China, Brazil, India, South Africa, that symbolically shows that Putin is not alone, that Putin is not a pariah to every single country. And we have seen Russia ramp up oil exports to both China and India. We have seen these countries sap up cheaper Russian oil. This somewhat blunts the impact of Western sanctions on Russia. And we heard Xi Jinping, as we talked about yesterday, somewhat echo what we heard from Putin's comments. Xi Jinping condemned Western sanctions on Russia for, quote, weaponizing the global economy and also made veiled criticisms of U.S. and NATO, which Beijing has repeatedly criticized for provoking Russia. Interestingly as well, we heard Putin talk about how BRICS nations are exploring the possibility of creating an international reserve currency based on the basket of the BRICS currencies. And we talked about how this has taken some added urgency given these Western sanctions that have been slapped on Russia. But key point here is that it's unclear just how wholeheartedly we're going to see all of the BRICS countries embrace this strong messaging, embrace these initiatives, given that BRICS has long struggled with mismatched ideologies and geopolitical interests. Not all of these countries are going to want to be seen aligning too closely to Russia and anger their their Western friends and allies. But again, the importance of BRICS can't be overstated in the sense that they comprise more than 40% of the world's 
population and about a quarter of the world's GDP. Julia. Yeah, and in a global slowdown, trade is key, and particularly when energy prices are so high, ensuring security of supply is uh, first and foremost, I think, as every nation in the world knows. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Aid agencies are deploying humanitarian teams and supplies to eastern Afghanistan after a massive earthquake struck the remote region. More than a thousand people are known to have died so far and at least 1,500 were injured. UN officials say they need $15 million worth of aid right now. Atika Schubert joins us live from Istanbul with all the details. Atika, it's become very clear in the last 24 hours the challenges for the rescue efforts and those rescuers that are involved here. What are we hearing about perhaps how many people remain alive, trapped and are still awaiting rescue? Well, at least a thousand have been killed, but that death toll is expected to rise. And you are right. This is a very remote area. What few roads uh, lead to this part of the country have been damaged by the earthquake and also by landslides. The earthquake happened just as the monsoon season was beginning. So heavy rains actually caused a number of landslides in the area as well. Um, What's really making it quite difficult, however, is the fact that a lot of international aid agencies actually left Afghanistan when the Taliban took over last year. So that kind of international aid infrastructure is really stretched very thin right now in Afghanistan. One of the few on the ground is the ICRC, the International Red Cross. Uh, And we just spoke to the ICRC spokesperson for Afghanistan, uh, and he said they are supplying uh, food, shelter, uh, medical help, clean water. Those are the basics that are most desperately needed right now. Um, but it is difficult to get to the area. You know, interestingly, another concern, he said, uh, is the fact that a lot of unexploded ordnance, landmines, and other weapons contamination are likely to have shifted in the earthquake. They said the ICRC has actually seen an increase in the number of injuries since the beginning of last year. And now they're very worried that with this earthquake, they're likely to see even more injuries coming, not just from the earthquake, but with this shift of what with the shifting unexploded ordnance. So there's a lot of layers to this catastrophe. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of help coming in. Again, the problem is those re- the relationships with the Taliban. Very few countries really maintain those relationships. So now getting aid in is very difficult. Turkey is one of the few that actually maintains an embassy in Kabul. Uh, and it is one of the few that is well-placed to actually bring in search and rescue teams. So we've spoke, spoken to the Turkish Red Crescent and other aid agencies here. They say they are on standby. They are already have some teams on the ground and are sending in help. But again, access is difficult, Julia. Yeah, and I spoke to the head of CARE Afghanistan yesterday too, and they said uh, he said that they were already resource-constrained due to the economic crisis, so they desperately need international aid help. And, and to your point and his comments, Satika, what are the Taliban saying about accepting international aid and help at this moment? Well, the Taliban has said that it is accepting international aid and that it does need the help desperately. Uh, the problem is it doesn't have the relationships it needs. I mean, for example, Turkey says it is willing to help with search and rescue, but that it has not received this request from the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think one of the real bottlenecks here, in addition to the fact that there's not many aid agencies on the ground, is that the Taliban just doesn't have the kind of relationships that it needs to get emergency aid to the people that need it the most right now. 
Yeah, the lines of communication aren't established. Actually, the lines of communication between the NGOs are probably better than they are between NGOs elsewhere and, and the Taliban itself. Um, Atika, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insights there. Atika Schubert there in Istanbul. Okay, in a few hours, former senior officials from the U.S. Justice Department will testify about Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. They're expected to tell Congress that the former president tried to pressure the department into supporting his false claims of voter fraud and that he considered replacing the acting attorney general with someone who backed his claims. A reminder, you can watch the entire hearing right here on CNN starting at 3 p.m. in Washington. That's 8 p.m. in London, 3 a.m. in Hong Kong. And commuters in the UK are once again struggling to get to and from work. It's a second day of a strike by rail workers, the biggest to hit the industry in more than 30 years. Tens of thousands of staff are protesting pay freezes and job cuts. Another strike is set for Saturday. OK, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, are you a slacker? The CEO of Slack says there's plenty of life left in the communications tool as we all trudge back to the office and making old like new again. Future-proofing classic cars with electric power in a business backed by David Beckham. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Green arrows across the board for US futures. A pullback in bond yields and a further softening of crude prices helping the Wall Street picture. All this, I think, a reflection of Fed Chair Jay Powell's warning yesterday that a US recession cannot be ruled out. Many believe a mild U.S. recession has already been priced into stocks. That said, the inflationary pain for U.S. consumers remains very real, with new data showing motorists becoming much more cautious before filling up their tanks. A new study saying U.S. gas demand fell more than 8% in early June compared to the same time a year ago, 14 straight weeks of slowing sales at the pump, in fact. And oil executives are worried about committing to higher production targets with the demand picture so uncertain, even as political pressure builds for them to pump more and bring down prices. They're meeting with White House officials today to discuss the road ahead as President Biden states his case for a three-month federal gas tax holiday intended to bring relief to consumers. Gas price pain in the United States, nothing compared to the challenges facing Europe, with Germany today warning that it's running short of natural gas as Russia cuts supplies. Rob Thummel joins us now. He's Portfolio Manager and Managing Director at Tortoise, and he joins us now. Rob, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, the IEA warned Europe this week that they need to be prepared for Russia to completely cut off gas supplies, and we're seeing Germany respond almost immediately. What's your sense of what we're seeing? It's a kind of self-rationing that they're pushing here, but it has negative consequences, surely, longer term for oil and gas prices. Yeah, no, thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me on. So if you think about what's happening in Europe, it, it, it's really tragic. It's, you know, it really shows the importance of, of really energy security and having your own and having access to your own sources of supply. And so, yeah, there was the, the, this winter, um, it, it could be devastating across across Europe if if Russia would would choose to to shut off supply gas supplies to, to uh, Europe. Now, the, the, the Germany and other countries across Europe are actually taking actions right there. They're reducing gas supplies today so they can natural gas supplies today so they can increase their inventories and, and be prepared for for this type of uh, scenario um, but as you highlight you know longer term um, the the answer is probably twofold it's more us lng to to, to europe as well as then in the in, in the intermediate you're probably going to have to have less natural gas demand in europe so that means 
uh, more pronounced recession potentially in Europe as industrial plants and, and other manufacturing facilities are forced to ration the amount of natural gas that they consume. It's really tough to forecast in this kind of environment. I mean, your own uh, forecast, you're saying natural gas prices are expected to be 111% higher this winter than they were last winter. And of course, natural gas prices in Europe, what, two and a half, three times higher than what we see in the United yeah. States because Europe relies on Russia. I'm trying to imagine the kind of demand destruction that you were just talking about at those levels, severe. Yeah, p- potentially. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, is with natural gas, it, you know, it's really inelastic demand, uh, especially in the winter in, in general, right? I mean, a lot of us use it for home heating uh, across the world. And uh, yeah, we could turn our thermostats down a little bit and, 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 and be a little colder inside our house and put on a sweater. That, 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 that mm-hmm. wouldn't hurt anybody, I guess. And, and, but, but in general, the demand for natural gas has been very, very inelastic. And so um, we, we will see how these elevated prices really impact demand going forward. But, but I, I wouldn't expect to see a significant decline in, ga- in, in natural gas demand really anywhere in the world. You, Rob, you're interesting in that you've actually made it personal because you've been honest about what the cost increase has been for your family. And I believe with two children who also drive, um, four drivers in a household it is pretty tough. I think you said it's around $800 a month extra the cost of the energy prices that we're seeing, just to give an international audience a sense, even in the United States. Yeah, that's for gasoline, right? And I've got two two, two teenagers, uh, obviously, and a wife, and we live in the Midwest, so everybody drives everywhere for, for your international audience and, mm. and for your New York audience <laughs> as well. So we're driving a lot. Um, um, so so anyway, so yeah, it, it, it's it, uh, obviously, and it's just not me, it's, it's, it's everywhere, obviously, mm. across all of US and Europe as well, in terms of uh, the 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 economic consequences, I guess, of these of this of the inflation in gasoline and the impact that that that's having. The good news is we started to see oil prices come down a bit, um, and and I and that will correlate in the next few weeks, uh, I hope, into lower gasoline prices uh, everywhere um, and and reduce some of that that extra expense that that all of us are having to spend on filling up our gas tanks. I mean, you think that anything the government can do to help in the short term would be welcome? Why is there this? clear and obvious reluctance to a gasoline tax holiday that the, the president suggested yesterday. It's always been poo-pooed instantly, if not before. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, I'm not a political expert. And I and if you would ask me before yesterday, what, what's the easiest way to reduce gasoline prices right now? I would have said, yeah, get, get rid of the gas tax temporarily. And I, so I think that's a that would have that that is still a positive move and can help lower prices. Uh, once again, increasing production in the U.S. and, and in Canada uh, for, for oil actually will reduce gasoline prices. There's a big geopolitical risk premium in oil prices right now because of what's going on in Russia. So if you could increase oil supply, the oil supply globally from more secure sources, uh, that ultimately will, will help reduce that geopolitical risk premium in oil prices, in my opinion. And then ultimately that results in lower gasoline prices. So that doesn't happen right away overnight, like a gasoline tax uh, reduction could, but that can happen you know, over a series of months and years. Just quickly, can you quantify the size of that geopolitical price premium that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to estimate, but I, I, a lot of people yeah. have, uh, have estimated, and I would agree with this, about $10 a, a, a barrel. So, okay. you know, could oil be a, below 100 uh, potentially um, if, if, if we could get more secure supply sources of, of oil around the world? And, and I think that that's true. I, I, I actually... It's a bit counterintuitive, but I but I do think the the more U.S. supply, the the, the lower the price. 
you know, the only real beneficiaries at this moment are the oil majors and we're seeing record profits. Could some of that be shared, Rob, do you think in your mind? I mean, it's money that they also desperately need to help the transition to renewable energies. Um, And it does seem at times that the administration wants it all. They want them to to pump more, but still shutter those dirtier parts of the business by 2030. It's sort of counterintuitive to ask them to invest today and uh, be okay with it being gone in in five to six, seven years time. Yeah, no, that's a good good point, Julia. Um, you know, I think the majors. You know, I have a high degree of respect for for uh, Mike Worth and 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 Darren Woods at, at Chevron and Exxon. Uh, and, and what a lot of people aren't paying attention to is uh, they they are reinvesting a lot. I mean, they are growing production volumes in the U.S. in particular in in West Texas and the Permian Basin. So so they're trying to produce more energy, but they're also trying to l- reduce carbon. So not only are they producing more oil, more natural gas. Um, and actually investing in LNG. If you look at Chevron, just invested a bunch of LNG yesterday. Um, they're also actually investing in renewable fuels and uh, things like Chevron just purchased one of the largest renewable fuels uh, operators here in the U.S. called Renewable Energy Group. It just closed late, late last week. Um, so, and, and Chevron's looking at and, and, and considering investing significantly uh, in a carbon capture program and a carbon mm-hmm. capture system on the Gulf Coast that could have significant improvements in, in decarbonizing. So the majors are doing a, are very focused on producing more energy and less carbon. And, and, and I hope that that comes through today um, in, in the discussions that they have with the, the Secretary of Energy. Yes, it's just a tough conversation in the interim, in the short term, at least. Rob, thank you so much for your insights today. Great to chat to you as always. Rob Thummel there, Portfolio Manager and Managing Director at Tortoise Capital. Okay, EU leaders are meeting this hour to discuss Ukraine's application to join the bloc. They're expected to approve granting candidate status to both Ukraine and Moldova. Going into the meeting, the president of the European Council called the move geopolitical choice. This is a decisive moment uh, for the European Union. It's also a geopolitical choice that we will make today. And I'm confident that today we will grant the candidate status to uh, uh, Ukraine and to uh, Moldova and express a clear and strong perspective for European perspective for Ukraine, Georgia and, uh, and Moldova. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, it does feel like candidate status for Ukraine is a a foregone conclusion. Beyond the importance of the symbolism, which I don't discount, what does that candidate status unlock for, for Ukraine? It unlocks additional funds. Uh, I mean, let's not forget that already the EU is providing humanitarian support, is is working towards sort of a, a build back support when the war's over to build back the country and infrastructure, supporting the government in payments of, of officials across the country, and of course supporting in military weapons. What this does would unlock funds that would allow Ukraine to go through the necessary steps and processes of aligning its laws with Europe, with the European Union. There's an estimated 200,000 pages of laws that they would have to integrate their laws with. That's a huge task for any country. I mean, look, it took Poland 10 years from deciding to join the EU to actually completing the process. So it's a long process, but it can be an expensive one in terms of resources. Very difficult while you're fighting a war to be distracted on many fronts. The Justice Ministry, for example, you know, is looking at war crimes right now, but it would also have to turn its attention 
to working through European Union justice documents to align themselves and across the whole panoply of different government ministries. So there would be a financial support which would help with the mechanics of getting the country ready for joining the EU. Essential too. It's also a move, of course, that's diametrically opposed to Putin's perceived ambitions. How will he take this? Not well. Uh, it's perhaps for him, it's almost as big a threat as having NATO increase its forces closer to the border, have more permanent forces closer on its eastern flank, closer to Russia. But what it tells President Putin is that the uh, the, the people who you know of Ukraine who spoke in 2014 disappointment when their president turned down uh, his decision at that time to uh, to integrate more closely with Europe and turn his focus back more to Moscow, that it tells Putin that this is happening. The thing that caused him to invade Ukraine back in 2014, the thing that's caused him so much anxiety ever since, democracy and democratic values, um, an eradication of corruption and everything that goes with it and the sort of um, autocracies, autocracy that he runs in his country, that's changing closer to Moscow. And the fear for Putin would be Russian people would read that and react to it and react against him and his style of leadership. So he's unlikely to take this well. He'll know that this is going to take a long time. And right now he's, he's in battle mode. We've heard from European leaders today saying very clearly uh, Russia's waging an economic war against Europe. You've just been talking about it there. The shortage of energy supplies coming to Germany and other European nations and, and the impact that's going to have timed likely for next winter. Putin knows he's in a big struggle and this is just another step in the opposite direction of where he wants to get to. Yes, as Charles Michel said, a geopolitical choice. And that's at the heart of this. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Your stocks are up and running this Thursday. A higher open today after Wednesday's slight pullback. A bit less volatility so far this week on Wall Street. And that is certainly not a bad thing. Investors will be tuning in to the action on Capitol Hill once again today as Fed Chair Jay Powell delivers a second day of economic testimony before Congress. All this amid new signs of a slowing economy. JP Morgan this week laying off hundreds of employees in its mortgage department as the housing market cools. Also today, sportswear giant Nike announcing that it's pulling out of Russia completely three months after suspending its operations there. Now, the term slacking at work is taking on a whole new meaning, particularly as millions around the world balance remote and in-person work. And that's where the messaging program Slack comes in. It's keeping teams connected no matter where they are located. And its digital co-working space is getting a whole host of upgrades, including a revamped version of a feature known as Huddles that soon will allow video chats. And even your next big break might come from Slack messages. Job seekers have been tuning into invite-only networking channels to land their next big role. And joining us to discuss all this is Slack co-founder and CEO Stuart Butterfield. Stuart, welcome to the show. Um, I was poring over some of the details and the response to them, and um, I picked out two words that I liked. Is this the Zoomification and the LinkedInification of Slack? Uh, it's a great question. First of all, great to see you again. Um, the uh, the LinkedInification is an interesting idea, but this is much more uh, networks that workers create around sometimes topics of interest, sometimes uh, communities of, of support for one another. Um, but it kind of demonstrates the 
like kind of professional interests of these employees outside the context of their normal work. And as for the Zoomification, no, it's uh, there's a really interesting continuum. And I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic was um, all we had was this hammer of of 30 minute uh, Zoom calls or video calls. And so all of the world of interaction with your colleagues, all the world of collaboration looked like 30 minute uh, video call nails. And I think we need a, a much richer set of tools. And this isn't um, instead of, I think this is complementing Zoom. We're a happy customer of Zoom and I'm sure I'll continue to use them forever. But uh, there's a there's a pretty big difference between the, the meeting format and the kind of uh, collaborative live working session. And we're really aiming to support this use case. You know, what's fascinating to me in many ways about, about your company and the sort of flexibility that you're trying to provide companies in this moment is not only do you have an insight into where people's workers are operating from and where, but also personally, because I've read post-pandemic, two-thirds of your workforce have actually been hired post. I mean, that's huge. And it also gives our viewers a sense of how you're scaling up as well. Um, what does the workforce look like now? And particularly in light of the hiring that, that you've been doing in very recent times, how are those conversations being had and what do people want? It's a great question. And I think the, the one thing that people want more than anything else um, is flexibility. It's We did a bunch of research with a group called Future Forum. 79% uh, of people want flexibility in where they work, but 94%, and this is second only to compensation, 94% want flexibility in when they work. And I think the ability to move some of the synchronous work, so work that's happening with multiple people at the same time, like a meeting, to asynchronous means is incredibly important. And when we have that alternative, it gives people an enormous amount of flexibility. It gives employers more flexibility to hire in a wider geographic area. And yeah, you mentioned that two thirds of our workforce is post-pandemic. At this point, for most companies, it's going to be 20%, 30%, 50%. You know, we've been in this in this state for two and a quarter years, and the employers who choose to uh, cast a wider net in where they're hiring, I think, are at a huge advantage. The employees' demand for flexibility can only really be met by employers who are willing to uh, have a little bit of an open mind. I mean, there's still a pretty large contingent of people who have this belief that at some point soon, you know, 90 days from now, at any given point, we're going to go back to exactly the way things were, and that plainly is never going to happen. Oh, there was a lot in there. I'm trying to decide what I ask you next. Um, you mentioned something really important, I think, which is that you're hiring in places where you don't even have offices. And this is a mm -hmm. crucial part of that. Is it making it easier to hire? Is it making it cheaper to hire, particularly in, as we look around the world, super tight labor market conditions? It is super tight labor market. So no, it's not about um, uh, cost savings. It, it is really about widening the net. You know, we've been through a decade plus of very, very difficult competition for hiring technology workers. And regardless of what happens in the macro environment, I don't see that changing just because technology is becoming a bigger component of healthcare, of financial services, of retail. So everyone is hiring uh, technology workers. The uh, realization that we had maybe in the summer of 2020 was we're hiring all these people in places where you don't have offices. We're telling employees who live in New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, London, Toronto, Vancouver, you know, places where we have offices, that they're allowed to move. Uh, many of them moved you know, hours away or in some cases much further in order to get a bigger home, to be closer to family or whatever their, their needs were. We can't ask them to come back. So the idea that people are going to be in the office for two days a week doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, unless you're really going to constrain the the potential pool of employees to those which live within a commuting distance of one of your offices. And that would be foolish. 
Are we at a risk point? And it's interesting given the economic backdrop and perhaps the challenging times that we're headed into and the uncertainty of the times we're headed into, that if you mandate someone has to come back into work versus saying, look, you can have flexibility, um, do you risk losing people? Because you've got some anecdotal Absolutely. evidence. <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, to be clear, it's not that people never want to get together with their colleagues in person. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be able to do that as the, the uh, intensity of the pandemic has subsided. We're getting to do more of that. It's really a question of what you said, the, the optionality. And the having the option is really important, even if there are populations, let's say, um, uh, our workers in, in Japan tend not to have, especially in Tokyo, big palatial houses with multiple rooms where many people can be having video calls at the same time. They're eager to get back into the office because the, the built infrastructure doesn't really support it. There's also some people who just want more separation between home and um, and work and there's people who are really young if you're fresh out of school if you're 22 years old work is a really big component of your social life so there are people who want to spend some time in the office but i don't know anyone who's desperate to have to spend nine to five monday to friday in the office anymore and i know personally <laughs> that i'm never going to do that yeah i know it says something about them as a as a person perhaps and what's going on at home um can i take a step back as well and ask you about the broader tech sector and again, the economic backdrop, the shakedown in valuations that we've seen in many ways. And you can argue whether or not you are, but cushioned in some way through the, the Salesforce purchase and the ability to perhaps ramp up investment in, in more difficult times. What do you see going on in terms of valuation, recognition, economic environment? And what does it mean for this sector? And I know it's diverse, but, but broadly. Yeah, so you're right. I think being part of Salesforce is a, is a huge win for us. It's a company mm -hmm. that has nearly six dollars of free cash flow a year at this point. Slack's performance has also been really good, but the, um, the kind of compression in multiples is is very real uh, over the long run. And I've lived through many of these cases now. I graduated. From, oh, I'm old, so I graduated from high school in 1991. So I lived through the 1992 recession, the dot com crash, 2008, and there was a couple of other smaller, you know, 2015, 2018. We'll come out the other side of this. Uh, I don't see further compression in multiples, but what we do question is the ability of um, of companies to live up to their earning expectations. So there is a feeling that there might be another shoe to drop. On the other hand. If you look at the absolute fundamentals, I don't see any big challenges that we haven't already incorporated into our, our thinking. So I, we're going to come out the other side of this. We always come out the other side. And the maybe the silver lining is this is always an excellent time to start new companies. Slack, the you know, company that became Slack, was started in uh, 2009, right? In the wow. thrall of the financial <laughs> crisis. That's true of a lot, like Uber and Airbnb as well. Um, and I, I think we'll look back 10 years from now and see this as a really fertile time and uh, a lot of new companies, a lot of new innovation. Yeah, I like the optimistic note. And you can't beat age nor experience in these kind of uh, moments, I think, as well. Um, on, a, on, a, on a far more serious note, um, Stuart, you signed a letter back in, in 2019, I believe, saying that abortion rights in the United States are a fundamental part of equality. And we're waiting for a Supreme Court decision that could allow states to remove access to abortions for, for millions of women in the United States. Um, I just I wanted to get your take at this moment because business is incredibly powerful. If this happens, how should business respond? I think 
they should respond in the way that we at, at Slack and at Salesforce um, at a larger scale have planned to respond. And, and many other companies have done this too. I think Citigroup and, um, and others, which is offered to support our employees' health in the way that we would normally and offer to cover travel to jurisdictions where the medical procedures they require are more available. I know this is a very personal um, debate for many people and I, I have strong opinions and I think I represent the opinions of our employees. We want to be respectful to everyone, but at the same time, I don't think we can take away these fundamental reproductive rights from people and companies have a bit of an obligation to support their employees. Stuart, always great to chat to you. Thank you. Stuart Butterfield, co-founder and CEO of Slack. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, electric cars at prices to shock. This Aston Martin looks like a million dollars and, well, it costs it too. In fact, it actually costs more than a million dollars. The company giving a new lease of life to classic cars. Next. Welcome back to First Move and to a story of famous royals, football stars, not to mention some really fabulous cars, plus saving the planet too. What's not to love? So when our next guest saw wedding photos of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle driving off in a Jaguar E-Type which had been converted to electric power, it inspired a business which gives classics like these a whole new lease of life. Lunaz restores Aston Martins, Range Rovers, Rolls Royces, Bentleys and Jaguars and adds electric drivetrains instead of their original combustion engines. Among the investors in one of the UK's fastest growing companies is David Beckham. And it's not just classic cars. The company's also working on industrial vehicles like refuse trucks. David Lorenz is the CEO of Lunas, and he joins us now. David, great to have you on. This is a phenomenal concept. It's a sexy, classic car meets sustainability, but I know it's about way more than that. Um, give us the ethos of the company. Exactly. So we take vehicles that already exist, and we upcycle and electrify them for a cleaner future. We really want to enhance what upcycling can do as we see this transition from ICE to clean air powertrain. So we started with classic cars where we built the first electric Rolls-Royce in the world, the first electric Bentley, the first electric Range Rovers, but also have Luna's applied technology where we apply the same approach of taking what already exists, restoring and upcycling it. And this can be applied to thousands, if not millions of vehicles around the world and enhancing all of that embedded carbon, which is within these vehicles. And it's, it's just about everything, power steering, uh, uprated brakes, suspension, air conditioning, even Apple CarPlay. Exactly. So we take every car and uh, industrial vehicle back to its bare nuts and bolts. So they get fully stripped down, everything comes off the vehicle, and then we rebuild them from the ground up. With the classics, we go through a painstaking thousands of hours of restoration, redoing the interior, exterior, adding air conditioning, heating, as you said, Apple CarPlay, all of the mod cons you would expect with heated seats, electric windows, etc. And really looking at how we can transition these vehicles for future generations to enjoy. You know, my daughter's four years old, Luna, and I really wanted her to be able to see and enjoy and drive these vehicles as we enter a new age of clean air powertrain. And it was the perfect answer for institutions around the world, whether it's hotels or restaurants. And really looking at fleet vehicles with Rolls Royces and Bentleys, where they didn't have the option for an electric luxury vehicle in this sector. And we wanted to provide what they needed and required as an institution. And uh, it's fantastic to see them on the road. And I'm in London today and it's lovely seeing them driving around. Okay, what's the cost, David? And how long does it take to um, 
I'll use the word pimp, pimp one of these rides to go back to that old show on TV that yeah. did similar, but not quite, not quite the same as this. Yeah, very slightly different to that, I must say. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the way to now with different cars for Q4 next year. And the prices start at 350000 for the Jaguars, going up to $1.2 million for the Aston Martin DB6 platform that we've developed. And they vary across the platforms, and we've got from limousines in the Rolls-Royce categories to Range Rovers with no roofs. And there's a huge category to choose from, and then you get led into the hands of our design team, Jen Holloway, who used to be the head of Aston q Ranch. And where you get to tailor these vehicles is really where the journey begins with Lunas uh, design. But it's, it's, it's an amazing concept and it's an amazing when people enter the factories because not only do they see people designing classics within the design studio, but you've also got bin lorries being designed and taking sustainable materials and transitioning these you know, commercial vehicles which haven't been thought about as such at how they can transition for the future generation. And uh, it's an incredible blend between the two products of Luna's design and applied technologies. Yeah, I want to talk about that in two seconds. Just a final question on this. What do the purists say, the classic car purists? Who, who's your customer base here? Because there will be those that say, you know, one of the beauties of a classic car is, you know, you, you lift the bonnet and you look at the engine and now you look at a battery and it's a bit like hmm, as good as it is for the planet. Exactly. Who's the customer? So, so we were really we were really focused on individuals that everyone loves a classic car. A lot of people don't go near ownership. And we wanted to answer the reliability, usability, and sustainability element of classic car ownership and really focus on the institutions where we could look at the fleet cars and how we could see classic Rolls Royces and classic Bentleys outside hotels as driving their guests around throughout the day. But it's amazing, you know, with the purest. We work very closely and uh, we've done multiple tours now with, for example, the Rolls-Royce Enthusiast Club, who we've got a great relationship with. And, you know, when they first came to Lunas, of course, there was a lot of skeptical sides to it. But when yeah. they come and they uncover and they get to see firsthand the level of restoration and work and quality that goes into all of these vehicles, they're proud. And uh, it's an incredible thing. And I'm sure Henry Royce himself would have been proud. <laughs> um, talk to me about the commercial side of this then too and, and the breakdown in the business if we talk about it in terms of, sort of revenue and profitability generation is the bulk of the business going to be at some point in the future big contracts to electrify refuse vehicles for example commercial industrial vehicles versus the sort of more niche luxury classic cars which admittedly are very beautiful how, how do you see the pipeline the orders and the split of the business going forward because i'm sure you're hiring people too for for the work that's got to be done no exactly and it it, it already is a much larger side to our business so with luna's design we created the factory at silverstone overlooking the formula one circuit to build 120 cars a year but you know, we're working now with the largest industrial fleet owners in the UK and Europe. And our facility is built to upcycle and electrify these. And it's six times larger than the current facility we have with a 1,200 vehicle capacity um, on the industrial side. You know, the scale side of Lunas is completely on the industrial side of our business. Um, but Lunas design is that incredible passion that comes through. But it's the answer to the quality and assurance of the capability of the engineering team. And they really do go side by side because it's, it really is the perfect blend of how you can upcycle a vehicle, whether it's from 1961 or from 2016. You know, this is a super cash intensive business. I can already imagine, particularly as you're, you're ramping up. We've 
obviously shown various images of one of your investors, which is, of course, David Beckham. Um, are you profitable? Do you even think about that right now or in growth phase? No, at the moment, we're purely in growth phase. You know, we are investing heavily into the company, you know, building uh, in different applications where upcycling is the right approach to this transition. You know, David was drawn to Lunas because the limitless possibilities of electrification and upcycling has. And we've got an incredible portfolio of investors behind the company, which really see the true potential. And we can't wait to globalize this solution. Yeah, it's so exciting to see. Very last question and very quick. Did David Beckham get a big discount? Of course not. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, with, okay. with these cars, there's that goes into these. And, uh, David appreciates this. And uh, he, he's an incredible investor and an incredible client of Luna's. Mm. And uh, I'm just so glad that he really sees the limitless possibilities of where the company's going. And he was firstly attracted by what we were doing on the commercial front. You know, it's what really grips uh, yes. the relationship between the two of us. Yeah, he's great. He's investing in the business, too. Your, your first sentence was the best. Of course not. Great to chat to you, David. Come back and talk <laughs> to us soon, please. Fascinating to see David Lorenz there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. And finally, who's a good boy? Show. The best in show winner is the Bloodhound. This is Trumpet, crowned the winner at the Westminster Dog Show in the United States. He was a firm favorite in a field of 3,500 dogs of more than 200 breeds and varieties. And in case you're wondering, my little doggy Romeo never made it to the finals due to administrative oversight on my part. More parental training required, of course, Romeo's perfect. But as you can see, he's great at balancing on books. He's brilliant at all-round agility, especially where fluffy donuts are involved. And grooming, well, he can practically take care of that all by himself. <laughs> he's a bit thinner now. He's had a haircut. Romeo, Trumpet and all dogs out there, we salute you for spreading love, loyalty and happiness around the world. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.